Did so, you just hear Ed jumping out in front of the in front of in front of the inn? In front of the intro of the Concrete Conservative. Absolutely, you, you, I'm sorry. You slipped in there like quicksand. Absolutely. Because today we have an incredible guest, kind of like the cinnamon girl that I just no, we interrupted. No, ha- we have lots of good guests. And Mr. Ross is apparently a socialist who had an uh, epiphany or something. Or a moment. Yeah, maybe. He, maybe. he now realizes that yeah. socialism Ale- sucks. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is next. So listen to Mr. Ross. Let's see what's up. This is WSQF 94.5 with the Concrete Conservative, Mr. Ed and Mac on the Rock speaking. Who do I have a pleasure to speak with? This is Cliff Ross. Mr. Ross, thank you for calling the Concrete Conservative. You're a friend of Al's or Ed's? Um, Ed. Oh, what a shame. I was I, hoping you I, were I Al's found friend. Clifton because he, he wrote a book, uh, an article in the Quillette uh, Journal called uh, The Bolivarian God That Failed. So I couldn't believe that. So Clifton, I, I see that you've been covering, you're an American, you're based in Berkeley, right? Yes. And so you've been covering Latin America since 1982. How'd you get interested in Latin America? I, through liberation theology, I was a Christian and uh, I was living in Berkeley and uh, of course all the ferment of Berkeley and uh, a lot of left projects and a lot of uh, perspectives uh, kind of drew me into it at that point. Yep, yep, yep. I know what you're talking about. Uh, you're talking to a couple of Cuban Americans who are not fans of liberation theology, but welcome, well, minute, welcome minute, wait a minute, anyway. Wait a Time out, Mr. Oh, did you buy into liberation theology yes. like Jeremiah Wright and all the rest of them? No, no, that's black liberation theology. Yeah, well, he, Latin well, liberation theology. Latin liberation. He right. thinks there's a difference. Do uh, you believe that there's a difference between black liberation and Latin liberation theology? Yeah, I do. Okay. So, but, uh, but in any event, in 1982, you started covering Latin America, and I guess you're, you're a socialist. You're a man of the left, a progressive. Is that correct? I, I'm, I don't like the word. I'm not a socialist. Okay. Um, I don't like the word term uh, progressive. Okay. Um, I'm, I think of myself as a uh, left liberal. Okay. Uh, with a social movement, uh, social movement orientation. Okay. Uh, which it requires uh, liberal democracy and market economies and uh, uh, welfare and uh, welfare capitalism. Yeah, you could call it capitalism. It's the word that Marx came up with. If you want to use Marx's language, that's that's okay with me. Although I don't like his okay. language. Okay. So, much. so you have been a fan of the Hugo Chavez movement in Venezuela for uh, eighteen years or so. Is that correct? I. I was in, I was following and supporting the movement for about nine years. Okay. Starting in 2004. Um, I wrote a book, a political memoir, called Home from the Dark Side of Utopia. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, came out in 2016. I went into all this. The, the article in Quillette is, is sort of a condensed version of that story. Right. So what, why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell us what happened? Well... Cognitive dissonance, I think, explains it all. Um, I, I think I probably hadn't, uh, like so many people, I didn't go down to the foundations of my thinking, you know, the presuppositions that are down underneath all the, the uh, ideas and rhetoric and, um, you know, surface formulations of, of, of ideas. Um, 
and I, I thought that a socialist society would be more open and more um, that, that it would be liberating. I, I, as I mentioned, I came out of liberation theology, and I was really impacted by the Sandinista Revolution, which I participated in as a solidarity activist in the 1980s. Oh, uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I that's my background. Um, you are young. You are you, you much younger. Do you know? Do you know where uh, Daniel Ortega is today? Yes, I do. Yeah. And my in my book, I was, I've been very critical of the Sandinistas, and and I think that um, as especially at well in 2013, I'll kind of move mm -hmm. to my the moment of shifting um, in my in my thinking when I realized in 2013 I was there for the. Uh, elections of Maduro after the death of Hugo Chavez, yep. working on the introduction to a chapter in our book, um, Until the Rulers Obey, Voices mm -hmm. from Latin American Social Movements. It was a book that we put out, my wife and I put out in 2014, um, of interviews with uh, 70 social movement activists from 13 countries in Latin America. And what we were, we were beginning to discover in the book <clears throat> is that the social movements under left governments were faring much more poorly than those under right-wing and um, capitalist, we could call them, uh, governments. Okay, can you tell us some of the countries on, on those two columns? I'm sorry? What are the two countries? Can you put those countries into the two columns, the the more well, capitalist there were, there were and... The, there were the uh, pink-tied governments, which were uh, headed by, uh, of course, Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Ecuador at the time under uh, Rafael Correa, yep. Bolivia under Evo Morales, etc. So those were the pink tide governments that came, in, the left wing governments that came into power in the beginning of the commodities boom, right? In the, in the early the turn of the millennium, right? And then there were the, the uh, right wing governments, uh, uh, Peru, um, Colombia, um, Chile would probably be called would have been at that time center center-left, right. uh, center-right, uh, but centrist in any case. Right. And, um, and uh, let's see. Um, Brazil, Brazil, at the, at the, at the Brazil had the a Brazil left was left in that time. Yeah, the left Brazil wing. was left, yeah, under Lula. Yes. So, so our book really, uh, we, we went through, third, I traveled through 13 countries in Latin America doing interviews with social movement activists and uh, countries in Central America, uh, Mexico, um, South America. And yeah. at that point, I was writing the introduction to Nicaragua and uh, Venezuela because I, I knew a lot about those two countries. I'd lived in both of those countries and knew pretty much what was going on there. Um, and was um, and, and decided to return to, uh, to Venezuela because I'd just written the introduction and Hugo Chavez died and I wanted to be there for the election. And when I got there, uh, I realized that um, there had been, the, the election had been really unfair, uh, really uh, sketchy. There had been many, many questions about the election. And I, um, and I had already begun to uh, ask questions about all the corruption and why it, it, the corruption had never been addressed. Um, Hugo Chavez had all this power, but he didn't seem to have the power to stop the, the, the stealing and the, the graft. But you ever thought that maybe he was doing the stealing? Right, that's the point of socialism. Of course, of course, um, that crossed my mind. Um, and so I, I, began, uh, I began talking with people in the opposition, and, um, 
and that and realizing that um, what well, I think it was probably there were two moments uh, for me. One of them was uh, was when I was talking with a, a labor journalist named Damian Pratt, who um, uh, reports in, in Guyana. He was working for the uh, uh, Correo de uh, Caroni mm-hmm. newspaper, and he um, I started recording uh, with my video camera an interview with him. And he said, I, it's, it's really inter- interesting, you, you intellectuals from the United States and, and Europe come down here to Latin America, and you, you just think it's just perfectly fine that we suffer the abuses of dictatorships, while you yourselves, that you yourselves wouldn't suffer for uh, five minutes. In fact, you'd violently protest against them. And mm-hmm. I felt my face turn red. I mentioned yep. this, I wrote about this in the, in the, the, the article for Colette. It, 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 it really powerfully impacted me and I started thinking about the contradictions that I had been willing to accept and could no longer accept and I began and then I met with uh, um, Margarita Lopez Maya a, a historian um, and um, activist and uh, a, a political scientist so, sociologist um, and she essentially laid out what was going on in Venezuela, a whole new narrative that answered all the questions that I'd been having for years, but really had felt that I had an obligation as a North American anti-imperialist, which was how I was viewing the situation in those years, um, to uh, kind of protect this third world government that was under attack by the empire. That was how I framed the situation. Well, when I started talking with um, Margarita Lopez Maya, she, she... she just opened up so many things to me, and I, be, I came home and I began reading, uh, really doing some investigation, and realized I'd been um, I'd been operating under a lot of illusions. I'd been uh, I'd been really wrong in my uh, understanding of the situation. And now, when you say situation, it's important for our audience to understand the situation was uh, what in specific how the indigenous communities of these countries were being. Led by the nose into like serfdom because of uh, the empirical capitalist power of the United States, or is this something, some underbelly philo- political philosophy that you were enamored by? I mean, for well, our audience to understand from what angle you're I think coming what from. Really, what really hit me when I was uh, when I started doing research was first of all what I was seeing in Venezuela was a was a massive scam. It was a massive uh, lie. Lie and stealing. Right. Yeah. I'm always reminding Ed on this show that we sometimes complicate our lives about why liberals love government so much, and I always bring back the notion it's about lying and it's about stealing. And that's basically it about all things yeah. that has and to do with it's the same statism. Thing. It's the same thing in Cuba, and it's the same thing in statism everywhere. Yeah, yeah wherever there's statism, yeah. it's an excuse for you to supplant yourself in a position of power through government, either by elected or by appointment, and then steal from the overachiever to give to the underachiever. And it's nothing more, yeah. nothing less. I understand that Hugo Chavez's daughter is the wealthiest woman in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Only she's hanging out in New York. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't know, I don't know much about... Uh, I, I haven't been able to verify that, but I uh, refer to that fact that she's got about $4.3 billion uh, um, in her account. Uh, I haven't been able to confirm that, but yeah, that's my understanding also. Um, well, yeah, yeah, so I think it, it was, uh, I began to look at socialism 
and reassess what I thought about that and realized that I was that the world that I wanted to see was never going to come about through socialism, period. It was just simply not possible. Um, Do you believe there's any particular quality that keeps that from happening, or is it just impossible because of well, human nature? I think, I think one of the pro- problems that I see, one of the major con- contradictions of socialists that I see is um, attempting to deal with the concentration of, of power that we see in, in monopoly capitalism. And I'm not talking about real um, Smithian capitalism, right. because Smith argued that you have to eliminate monopolies in order to have a functional uh, economy. Um, but I'm talking about the monopoly capitalism we live with today, that, that in order to address the problem of centralized power with monopoly capitalism, that you centralize power even further in the hands of a smaller group of people um, that not only control the market, but control the state. Right. I mean, I think that is just a massively delusional... Okay, way. so have you, been, have you been reading Milton Friedman? No, I've read some of uh, uh, Hayek. Yeah, um, that's a good start. I really like I really like Hayek. I, yep. I read his Road to Serfdom. That was really an important book. Yes. In my in my, I started reading in, in Janos Kornai uh, his book on the socialist system. Okay. Blazek um, uh, Kulikowski. Um, I've been reading a lot more in, uh, and I, I'm uh, Roger Scruton. A yep. little bit of um. Yep. Uh, Jerry Z. Muller, um, so they're, they're and, you know, people yeah. like that, but I, I uh, and Thomas Let, Sowell. Yeah, that's a good guy, Thomas Sowell. I would recommend that you go look at some of Milton Friedman, like Capitalism and Freedom and Free to Choose, and also another Chicago economist, George Stigler, S-T-I-G-L-E-R. And you'll, it'll really open your eyes, especially to this whole idea of monopoly capitalism and how businesses can capture the state. And really, socialism facilitates the capture of the state, and then they capture the business, and then there's well, how, no freedom. How is it that both of you, I'd like to I'd throw out this question to both of you, because yep. I think our audience would like to know your answers and then my answer. What do you think, what pivotal action that was done to the United States as a as a person through law that allowed monopoly capitalism to control the state. Tell me what you think, what single action or series of actions that allowed that to happen. Because I agree with both of you, monopoly capitalism has controlled the state. Corporate personhood for one thing. The fact that a, a group of people can engage in business with no uh, legal liabilities for one thing, okay. can amass huge fortunes and, and the tax law that, that, that went along with it, but the, the, and, then, and then through that power uh, that's, that's amassed through the corporation uh, to begin to uh, enter into the political system. I think campaign uh, finance reform is the, the, the crucial issue, okay. I think. That okay, Ed, what's your answer? Well, I, I think a corporation is a person. I'm a lawyer. I've known that Corporations are persons, so, and I wouldn't please. say that campaign finance reform is necessarily helpful because that can be a way of blocking other people's free speech. I think the whole problem in America, in terms of the turn towards statism and collectivism, started uh, with books like uh, *The Jungle*, with all these muckraking no, journalists. But that no, but the FDA. Right, but no, but then the FDA is now blocking drugs that need to get out there. Okay. So I'm saying is but that the, the muckrakers? Man, they clean up the meat. No. The no, no, no. That would happen already by private companies. No, man. People were no, getting No, private sick and dying. companies would do that. Swift, 
premium would make sure and does make sure that you get clean meat. Yeah, but that whole get, progressive era. Really hard no, on the no, no. Swift Premium is a, a very reliable company, as are many others. So you have to make sure you buy from Hormel, from companies that you can trust, Pillsbury. But I would say the, the, the problem in America started with the progressive movement in response to all this muckraking. Politicians like Teddy Roosevelt on the Republican side, and especially Woodrow Wilson, grabbed it to start regulating and increasing the size and scope of government. So you have the progressive era, then you have the New Deal. The New Deal did not get America growing again economically, but it expanded the role of government, the role of the Supreme Court. Okay, so and your, then t- third, your time is up. My time is up. The Here's Great the- Society was the real killer. All right, gentlemen. So now I, I'm assuming, of course, and excuse me if I'm wrong, that you're both or older than I. Okay. No, no, no. He's not very old. Come who, on. Who knows? I won't ask him his age because that's not important. Well, he did start working Latin America in 1982. I did see that on his. Okay, so we so. Might, might be. He's probably around 1960. Age. All right. The single act that you both have not told our incredibly talented and smart audience. The single act that What's has allowed that? the monopoly, the schools? capitalism, to take over the state is one act alone, and it's Amendment 17. The moment you told the people that us monopoly capitalists were buying entire state legislatures so that they would appoint their chosen senator to go to Washington, you've been had. Big time. Well, that's that's As a good a constitutional point. Amendment. And also the 16th Amendment, which is in some respects related. Once the people got to vote directly for a senator, the fix was in. Because yep. then the the monopolists didn't have to spend so much time in our but, states. We're time but, out. Yeah. I only had one point, mm-hmm. and I didn't have three Go ahead. rabbit holes. I only had one squirrel tree. And what happened was, and it has to be amended, it has to be not amended, it has to be completely repealed, but the moment you allow the the, the, the the ghoulish paparazzi that is the masses of people to vote directly for their senators, they were much easily bought once they got to Washington by the monopoly capitalists behind black curtains. And we the people have no control of our senator because we can't recall him as the state legislators could, which is what the founders sought when they yeah, had the state legislators appoint the senators. That's a good point. That's but the biggest me, problem we have. But Cliff, now you've been thinking about this, obviously, for a long time, and I hope you realize that uh, but Mac and I come from the, a different perspective. We're both, I'm a Cuban immigrant. I came when I was nine years old in 66, and Mac was born of Cuban immigrants. So we know your story from the other side from the beginning. My concern today is and you my have... my father was very active in supporting and funding the Contra. Yeah, so, so you can on, imagine. On we the sh- other we side. We were shooting at your ankles. We were you? shooting at you. But, <laughs> but so here's the question. Uh, how can how can we get the message out to other people, for example, especially millennials who are supporting socialists like Bernie Sanders to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? How can we get that message out without sending them to Venezuela, which they should go to? Well, you know, I, I really think we need to um, move toward a center in this country. I, I'm really disturbed by the, the process that's going on here because I saw the same thing happening in Venezuela. Right. The, the polarization, I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about populism. Populist projects are happening all over the world. They're supplanting liberal democracies everywhere. That's my perspective anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's when you have either the right or the left moving to an extreme. 
and as soon as you have an extreme right or left, you end up developing uh, the other the other side as a, as an extreme. And I think we need to kind of find some space in between the, the extremes uh, in which we find ourselves. I mean, I think that Ocasio-Cortez is a is a is a product of the Trump administration, and I think that really. I, Yes, I think I think that that the, 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 the don't you think that's an overreach in, in two short years? I think it's yeah. a product of Barack Obama's presidency. Yeah, sure. well, yeah, I, I I think I think we could probably go back to Newt Gingrich in 1978, and the Republicans when the, when he took the Republicans on a much more uh, hard 94 turn toward toward battling and seeing politics as a battle. I agree with that. Yeah, that's good. I agree with that. Gingrich in 1994. But he did gracefully, you know, I'll say gracefully because it didn't happen often, but he definitely handed Bill Clinton a surplus, which you got to admit. Yeah, well, between him and Clinton. Proof to the theory that that. government must be accountable to its people. But Cliff, let me get let's be let me get specific in my questions. You said that we've gone to the extreme right. I would say that the three most important. Uh, policies that Trump has enacted are cutting taxes and reforming taxes, de- reasonable deregulation, especially energy and the environment, and appointing law-abiding judges. Do you see that as extreme? I think I think those are viewed as extreme. By, I, I, I live here in Berkeley. I know how those things are being yeah. taken by people on the far left because Berkeley is still uh, the bastion of the far left in this country. Yep. And uh, I, yeah, I think those those are viewed as extreme. Um, I think for one thing, there there is big concern about the environment here, um, and I think I think there should be. I think that right. we we need to we need to protect our resources. We and I don't think that, uh, and I, I think that regulation is part of what government does. I mean, I mean, I think that there's good regulation, there's bad regulation. I think one of the problems is that all of this stuff gets ideologized so that you you have uh, either the state or the market, um, or you have regulation or no regulation. And right. I think that, or deregulation, I think that we really need to recognize that there are, there are times for everything. There's a time to regulate and there's a time to deregulate. There's a time for the market to operate a place and a place, and there's a time and a place right. for the state to operate. I mean, well, remember, we, sometimes the stakes overregulate right. to the that's, point that's where they the themselves point. contaminate yeah, the, the Obama. I would say that the Obama administration and the states under them were are overregulating. And, for example, California is a good place of overregulation where you can't even build affordable middle-class housing anymore. No, you can't even, yeah. you can't even pull a permit for yeah. a new business. There's too many permits. You can't build, you know, and... You if, have to employ people. And, you can't have people there, living there, in tents. There's a difference between environmental control and pollution pollution control and environmental worship, which is what I see mm-hmm. in Berkeley. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, and I, I think those are real problems. And I think that I think, but I think the problem gets framed as, as, as either regulate or deregulate. Right. And, and people say, speak about these things as, as if they were absolutes. There is no, you know, every market is regulated. Right. Every market is, is, is designed. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't allow in our market, for instance, body parts to be bought and sold. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, we hope, yes, yeah, we do. yes, we, we do. We jump on that. We yeah. watch Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is selling body parts for Absolutely. science all the time. There you go. Yes, this is, that's, I, this I, is I, one of those Eureka moments when you were sitting in front of your friend, 
and there's stuff that you Ed and I do not tolerate, and the, there it is. There it is. The status liberals tolerate. They sell body parts right now. Yep. They're cloning uh, what they call humanized mice right now in a laboratory yep. at University yep. of San Francisco with human em embryonic body parts of late-term abortions right before our eyes. The only thing we don't know is how much they paid for the body parts. Yeah. But it's happening. Okay. But we don't we don't buy and sell human beings. Uh slavery. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I'm saying that that is not legal anymore. We have oh, a government yeah. that says yes. that's being kept yeah. out of our market. But okay. illegal immigration is allowing uh people trafficking again. Yeah. Human trafficking. Human trafficking. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. It, 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 and, and, and it needs to be dealt with, and I think these issues need to be dealt with, but they, they're, they're not being dealt with in a rational way. They're being dealt with ideologically. That's my argument. You mean like mm -hmm. not building a wall? What you, asked me, you asked me what I thought we needed to do to yep. bring the millennials. We need to restore faith in, in that, that they can get what they want in this system. And I think a lot of people in this country, the people who voted for Donald Trump particularly, feel that they're not going to get what they want out of this system. People in the red states, I mean, I come from Oklahoma. My family is all Republican, and they all voted for Trump, and they all yep. live in Oklahoma. And I understand exactly why they voted for Donald Trump, because globalism has, has benefited the, the, the coastal cities. It has benefited the blue states, i.e. along the coast, along the, uh, the northern, uh, northeastern, and the, and the west coasts. But it's left, it's left so many people behind in the middle of the country. And I think we need to be able to, we need to restore that faith that the system can offer. Now, how is it going to, how are we going to be able to do that? I think... Fair, it's called a fair tax and, a, and a Article 5. Well, what, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I think that we need to, I need, we really do need to have a center in this in this country. We need but, to uh, but at the same time, hasn't the center brought us here? The it's center true. is lower taxes, no, deregulation, and The center and is income tax, judges. Amendment 17, Social Security, welfare, that's yeah, the center. Okay. And you guys are ignoring that. Welfare mm. state, great society, is all done by the mainstream left, progressive, yep. which had a bunch of conservatives in it, too. Because, hell, the hell, the founder of the progressive movement was a so-called conservative named Theodore Roosevelt, and he was yep. as progressive as it comes. The centers what brought us this massive state. Yeah, it, the problem, uh, Cliff, and I think Manny is stating it, is that it's this muddling through the center that has led us to a dead end. And uh, there's I no think draw, there's the, no lines drawn the, in the, the solution is not going to be to muddle through some more. Sooner or later, you have you to know, have Tony Blair, Bill need, Clinton muddling I mean, through third the, way. Don't we, in the end, when we talk about political philosophies, before we start upsetting each other and raising our volume and all that, mm -hmm. which is a messaging issue, we have to realize that in the dead center, there's a lot of people without conviction because it's massive. There's no real. A accountability. Sooner or later, you got to have your accountant tell you, "Hey, man, you can't buy that leather couch. You gotta, you gotta sit on canvas, my yeah. friend. You guys can't afford a leather couch, the, the, and you can't buy the." Yeah. The, See, the that's really TV. why Trump is from outside the party system, because the, the 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 establishment Republicans would not have cut taxes, deregulated, and appointed law-abiding judges. And they wouldn't have voted for Trump either. And they not wouldn't have voted. Not none of them did. <laughs> right. So you know, you we have Trump as kind of a reaction to this muddling through, but mostly muddling muddling leftward. And that, you know, Trump is like uh, William F. Buckley saying, uh, stand, standing athwart history saying, stop. That's what we have. Now, where, where is it that you, you feel like you could have an impact on your peers? 
or you yeah. just are willing to be an yeah, island what, in Berkeley? What kind of response have you gotten to your Quillette article, or is nobody talking to you in Berkeley? <laughs> or let, or giving even a glass of water at the restaurants? Uh, well, you, you know, I, I feel I've gotten, I've made some progress here in Berkeley. I feel um, I've been able to, I write about, the, I blog about Venezuela at my website, and I, uh, I, I, I have some readers. I have well, go ahead and tell your audience, or our audience, uh, about your website. We'd like to be able to uh, expose. Um I blog there about Venezuela. Um, I feel I've been able to um, get out a lot of information I, that I can't get out in the left press because they don't aren't interested in hearing a different point of view. Um, they're really stuck in a, a socialist. Um, you know, kind of what what now. publications were these that you were write you were writing in them before and now they won't publish you? Right, exactly. Which okay. Yeah. Could you name they, those they sources? My uh, my uh, queries. Um, so it's it's I'm, the doors are closed and I. Well, why don't you I, why don't you uh, this is community radio, so why don't you name them? I think the audience well, should know who are these people who are shutting the Nord, doors on Nord you. Punch, dissident voice, um, you know, places like that. I mm-hmm. I've, uh, I wrote for both of those. Frequently, I was a frequent contributor, and then at a certain point, um, when I came out and was in 2013, um, I published an article July 19, 2013, um, about saying that people needed to withdraw their support for the government of Venezuela, that it was a corrupt, um, and that it was corrupt and utterly uh, uh, creating a catastrophe in the country, and. Uh, that was the last thing I was able to publish there. I think. How much you think was stolen wow. from Venezuela? Hmm? How much you think Sorry. was stolen in, in, in total? Who knows? No, it's good to know. It's uh, because people that who are informed need to be able to compare the, uh, a mm-hmm. person like uh, Clifford's uh, total compared to what you and I bark out of here on the radio. So let's ask them. How much you think was stolen in, in totalitarian? I mean, uh, millions Somewhere, or billions? At, at, the, at a minimum. Uh, according even to uh, left opposition sources in Venezuela, at least at least about six hundred billion. There you go. Hey, more, we should become communists. More or less, more or less half of the entire GDP uh, windfall from the oil. Uh, right. When the oil was up at, at one hundred and thirty dollars a barrel, yeah. uh, and in those ten years when you know the price of oil was skyrocketing, yeah. about half of that um, windfall was uh, stolen. And including now we're seeing the, the blackouts in Venezuela. I wrote a, a piece called uh, When Will the Lights Go Out in Venezuela three years ago, uh, 2016, in, um, it published a dissident voice and, um, you know, asking, you know, talking about all the corruption around building power plants and uh, massive, massive skimming of money off of uh, the sales and kickbacks and uh, bribes and, uh, so, and just outright theft. Um, so it's it's a it's a massive massive fraud, um, and um, I think that when people figure that out, uh, they may do what I did, which is go back and question why they ever supported such a, a, a disaster in the first place, and then question the assumptions and look at you know why uh, what what alternatives exist in the world for. Uh, okay, now comes the juicy by, moment of your. Okay, while you're in Venezuela, any eyewitnesses to the Cuban intelligence state embedded in oh, the country? There are twenty-two thousand Cuban security agents. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I wasn't in 
moving in those circles. I was down on the in the, in the streets. Um, so, but yeah, I know the the, the G two controls uh, the Venezuelan intelligence. Hey, they control the government. They control Maduro. Uh, they're in control of the whole country. Um, that's why I, I, I mentioned the, the parasitic relationship of Cuba to Venezuela in one article at my website, which uh, got a lot of people very angry with me. But it's, that's essentially the relationship. It's parasitic. Yep. Now, when people get angry at you, it's because you're telling the truth you're and they, the truth. they didn't yep. think anybody would find out or, or they just don't believe, they think you're not telling the truth. No, they want to hide it because this is their belief system. Yeah, it is a belief yep. system. We have so a follow. How did, you, how did you get hooked up with Quillette? Um, I, a friend of mine suggested, because I was having, I was so frustrated trying to, you know, no longer being able to publish anywhere, yep. and I didn't know where to publish, and a, a Venezuelan friend was up visiting, and he said, oh, you should check into Quillette, and so yep. I, I wrote to them and queried them, and I wanted to write just an article about Venezuela, um, an, an analysis, but they wanted a story, they wanted my story, so. Yeah, excellent, um, excellent. The Bolivarian God That Failed. Well, I hope you get a lot more attention because you definitely deserve it. We've been telling this story, but, you know, We've been telling Manny and I are a couple of Cuban immigrants, so nobody will believe us. But well, I tell Ed all the time, I have to call him Mr. Ed because I used to call him Victorious Vidal, no, no. but he didn't like that. So now he's now Mr. Ed. He wants to be associated with a horse in a stable. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, I basically have been telling this story. I'm sure Ed, in some degree or another, has been as well for over 30 years about the G2's ability to infiltrate, hell, if it got to the highest levels with Al well, uh, Anna Boleyn Moltens here the in the U.S. Yeah, the defense well, I knew about the G2 in the 1960s, so I've, I. Yeah, it's you know it's you know East German trained yes. Stasi coming yep. to Cuba, at the behest of the Soviet Union to infiltrate and get intelligence yep. on the United States, and that's what the country's biggest export. And of now Cuba they're is. running Venezuela, and they've sucked it dry, and they're they're hoping to uh, okay, make I it run. Okay, I got a final statement here. Now that they've sucked it six. That's two hundred and forty billion more than I suggested to my audience. Okay. I, my number was three sixty. So you saying six hundred floors me. So uh, my question to you is: Do you feel that the United States demurred, deluded, denied itself its manifest destiny, excluding Cuba from it in nineteen sixty? Yes or no? Ed doesn't think so. That's a bigger uh, question. I, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. I, I'd have to think about that. Yeah. Um, because in 1960, from that moment on, the moment we... 61, when uh, Kennedy went okay. at Bay of Pigs. Go ahead, 61. I think, I, think, I think that was a mistake. I think the embargo was a mistake. I think it's propped up the, the Castro regime. Oh, well, look at all the mess it's created for 60 yep. years. Yep. A lot of revolution. Yep. And it also, yep. look what we did. We went to Vietnam instead. That's yep. taking your eye off the ball. Yeah. And, and not to mention, we're not counting the amount of Soviets and Russian submarines floating around in the, in the Gulf of Mexico and the tremendous involvement in the G2 forces in the tr import and exportation of cocaine into the United right. States. Right, that's true. And weapons. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, uh, Clifton, uh, thank you very much. We really appreciate you. your story. And you'll keep in touch. We, we definitely want you to be able to keep uh, getting your story out. Okay, but thank before you. he leaves, it's important that you read my website. Oh, yeah. Called GitmoFreeZone.us about using Article 4 of the <laughs> Treaty of Relations of 1934, which, of course, <laughs> repealed the Platt Amendment and uh, pretty much put the Monroe Doctrine to the wayside. But the Treaty of Relations in, in Article 4 
use it to redevelop Gitmo Free Zone for veterans by veterans. And we'll, we'll, st- we'll stay in touch. Yes, Gitmo Free Zone. And what is that address again? Gitmo Free Zone. Dot U.S. Dot U.S. Okay. Thank and, you. And check it out and tell me what you think about that because I believe that veterans should rebuild the city, the shining city on the hill there for themselves and another comrade who might be disabled to build city there for 100,000 people because we have the right to do so because the Cuban government cannot uh, control and mitigate its waterborne diseases, so we have the right to turn it into a quarantine facility. Well, thank you, Clifton. That's a very good story. Keep in touch and keep keep let us know if we can help you with anything. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, see, that's a really good story. It's so, it's a guy who's kind of a an epiphany a moment, yeah, of a liberal, of the left, socialist liberal, who yeah. realizes, oh, Uh-oh. I've been had. <laughs> yeah. Now your snarky laugh, to, your snarky laugh is more, not cool. More people need to wake up like that. I've been very cordial to Mr. Clifton, and you gave your no, buffoonish no. laugh. Oh my God, you're liberation Mr. theology! I ran Ed. into that in the seventies in high school. I knew it was garbage. Now another thing you're forgetting that here on the Concrete Conservative, yes. we always have the alternative to things. We don't just sit here and laugh from the upper upper stands and interrogate and try to assimilate. Right. We also have an agenda here, and the agenda is the reinvention of the United States because reform sucks. So when I have a person like him who's had an epiphany moment in his life, yep, better late than never, why is it you interrupt him when it's time to show him GitmoFreeZone.us? You know why? Because Ed doesn't believe in the GitmoFreeZone.us. Whoa! You got to turn down the volume. Hello. You got to lower lower down the volume on your live stream because it's on. You have to lower your volume. Who am I speaking with? This is the concrete concerns. Who am I? Hi, Robert. How are you doing? Thank you for calling. It's my pleasure. Okay, so I should introduce you to our audience. You I, have. I feel that there isn't much to say after after the, your first half hour. I know. That was I know. Pretty, pretty good show. Absolutely. Anyway, well, first we have um, to announce that you're speaking live on the air, 94.5 FM, WSQM, WSQF. This is the Concrete Conservative. My name is Mac, and we've, of course, you know Ed. So go ahead. No, uh, Robert. Okay, well, we, we, I think I would start out giving you my definition of what I what I'm talking about when I say socialism. Yep. Because the word covers everything from Marxism, communism, on one side. And sort of uh, very, very, almost completely irrelevant uh, mixes on the other extreme. Sweden is usually referred to as socialist, and yet Sweden is one of the uh, most capitalist economies in all of Europe. So, you know, you've got to be careful what you call... uh, well, Robert, let's let's let our audience know that you were for many years the editor of Ven Economia, which was the leading newsletter on the Venezuelan economy. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, and are you now exiled in Florida? I'm now in Florida. All right. Um, temporarily, but I'm here for the for the short term duration. Oh yeah, I'm, that uh, that's what a lot of Cubans I said. Had an operation. I have to recover All right. before I can travel. Good job. So, 
So what do you make of the situation in, in Venezuela? When do you think you'll be able to go back uh, to a new government, for example? Well, I don't, really don't know. But uh, Waldo, Waldo has gotten off to a very good start. He is the first, the first, let us say, opposition leader to have actually hammered together a coherent message, a coherent offer. Uh, for the past 20 years, been, the opposition has been joining in, 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 to be unified, but it's always been, uh, you get out of my way and let me get in with uh, right. no, uh, no real sense of what they would do when they got there if it wasn't to make the same mistakes as the right. government was already making. But finally, Waldo is broken with that, and the opposition finally is, is defined. Now let me go back a little to my definition, because I want to comment that, uh, the how we got to where Venezuela uh, is now. Yep. In a capitalist society, the, there's tremendous pressure on a company to perform. It gets competition from other companies. It has stockholders or owners who insist on, on results. And uh, if they don't get results, the company disappears, which is, uh, which is very good. Um, in a democracy, you also have a, a checks and balances. So a government that's, that's no good gets voted out of office. Um, but you take away the checks and balances in, in the government, and you take away the checks and balances in the economy, and you've got a monster, which would be a that's an understatement. Marxist, Marxist socialist combination where the government owns owns the means of production, and a an electoral situation where the man in the street has no power to replace. The okay, but that's what happened in Venezuela. Robert, when did you think that the elections started uh, being fraudulent? For example, I think uh, Chavez was probably honestly elected the first time, but maybe not the second time when Jimmy Carter was there. Yeah, I was. The Carter Center did a very poor job of ensuring uh, uh, that the election. He wasn't. A, he wasn't legitimately elected no, either time. Really? No, I think no. he was the first time. No, he wasn't. What? What, do you, what do you think, Robert? Was Chavez elected uh, properly in '98? Chavez won uh, fair and, and honestly in 1998. Yes. Um, a shame because uh, Carlos Andres Perez had gone and made great steps towards opening up the economy and putting Venezuela into the global economy. Right. And Caldera, little by surprise, um, kept that up. Right. So what Chavez received was economy growing very nicely, in spite of oil, oils being down to ten dollars, under ten dollars a barrel. The economy was growing nicely. The uh, prospects were excellent, and he came in and he started undoing it all. Now, let me clarify. I don't think it was Chavez. Chavez was 
the uh, executor. He was the guy who we saw. He was the guy who he, he had a silver tongue. He was the guy who did the talking. But the decisions, the policy, the strategy were all Fidel Castro yep. from Cuba. Fidel wanted to control uh, Venezuela. He wanted uh, Venezuela to finance him, and he, he achieved that. Uh, he Early on, he, he had uh, his people in the, in, the, uh, in the national identification offices, in the, in the re registry, the, the, uh, the, the, I don't know what you call them in English, they were, where, where, uh, where, for instance, where companies had filed their stockholders stockholder meetings, etc. Right. All of that, all of that structure was managed by the Cubans, and uh, and Fidel was calling shots, and Chavez was doing what he was asked to do. Now, getting back to the elections. The election in... Wait, wait, before you go to the next point, do you think Castro had anything to do with the fuddy-duddy cancer he got in his head after coming home from Cuba? Um, I think the... I don't... Put it this way. A lot of people, I think uh, uh, Chavez's cancer was real. Um, but... Fidel could not afford to have him go to the United States, for instance, to be operated because uh, it would open up a gap, uh, a gap in, in his security pro uh, process that would allow people to find out what his, his role was. So he insisted on, on Chavez being operated in Cuba, and the Cubans were not up to it. Right. What year was the, the second election of Chavez? I think that was the one where Carter dropped the ball. Yeah, well, it's, I, I get a little confused on the years also, uh, because it would have been 2006. Okay. The, uh, there are things to know the comment about the elections. One is the, the system the vote counting system, right. which is a machine, machine, uh, voting machine, uh, computerized, etc., was practically foolproof. There was only one, one uh, failure, and that's the same failure you had before when the system was totally manual, which is if the opposition isn't there to protect itself, mm -hmm. to protect its votes, right, you have there's to have nothing... Uh, to prevent the government representatives to vote on to vote in, in quote marks on behalf of everyone who did not show up that day. Right, that poll watching is essential even in the United States. So I understand. So uh, Chavez would win by by uh, nice nice margins, but with you know ninety nine percent people voting for him in certain places right. which were usually uh, away from the center of town. And uh, studies of those election results 
all suggest he might have won in 2006. He clearly lost in 2012. Well, what, what makes you, why, why the delay of having Maduro live peacefully and gracefully in Cuba? What do you think they're holding on to that oh, yeah. might cost Maduro his life if he continues hanging around? Well, I don't really know. Let's go back a little bit in history. Uh, Allende reportedly said, please get me such and such. Let's talk about uh, a, a, a truce and see how, how we could end this. And so instead, Fidel had him killed and claimed he had suicide because Fidel could not afford to have uh, the, the Chilean situation open to the public negotiation. Um, so you're basically saying, Maduro, uh, you can't go anywhere. Right. I'm going to take care of you. Stand strong. Or, or we'll kill you. Uh, or, yeah, we'll take you out. Yeah, exactly. So, so what? Caracas has to crumble like Havana has. For well, it's already crumbling. There's no electricity for three days. Well, that was done by him on purpose. Well, there well, you I are. Mean, you take the power away from the people by taking away their power, then they can't revolt against you because they can't yeah, even well, see each other. The taking away the power was not in, intentional, but it was an inevitable result of failure to maintain. What? What? Uh, not, not very many people are clear at what started the, the big blackout. I, I believe it was intentional. Was a brush fire. I don't believe that. one of the main high, 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 high voltage, high tension right. lines that go from from the south where, where the dams are. Uh, that's, north, uh, that sounds like an explosive are. to me. <laughs> and it knocked down, it knocked down three, three, uh, three transmission lines. Totaling something like uh, yep. 475 All right. megawatts. So if Maduro is not going to leave because the Cubans will kill him if he tries, how long can the opposition hold out? Um, I don't know. Because yeah, how long can anyone hold out in a country which is running out of, of food, which is running out of water? And, for instance, today I talked to... to uh, somebody in, in the building where I live when I'm in Caracas, and they normally, when, when there's no water, they pay a tank truck uh, to bring water. Right. But the tank trucker told them that the private uh, truckers like, like he, he are not being allowed to load up with water, only uh, government trucks. Okay, okay, so now you've got a situation that's that's in those dire straits, and you believe that those happen as a result of the corruption and all. Um, there isn't there anybody in the, in the line of communications in the in the links of food distribution? Why am I hearing reports that they're filling up the supermarkets in pivotal areas of Caracas to calm the people down? Is in other true? words, complete control over the food supply. Like, fill up the supermarkets for three or four days. They're false sense of hope. Everybody mm -hmm. goes in there and gets free stuff, basically, because I doubt they're going to run the register right. and, and barcodes. And then all of a sudden, the stores are empty again for the next three weeks. But uh, in the pivotal parts of town, meaning people that are not quite dirt poor, they are can, you know, but uh, people that 
that are throwing rocks get stuff in their supermarkets. So what is it that we're hearing these two different stories going on? And that's what the Cubans, the Castro government used to do the same thing. They would fill up supermarkets in one area where people were, where there was unrest. People would settle down. Hell, Fidel used to come out of Jeeps himself and calm the crowd down. He would literally right. say, mm -hmm. he would re literally say like a god, yeah. Senores y Senores, tenga paciencia, la revolución te va a rescatar. And all of a sudden, food would show up for like mm -hmm. three or four days. So, is that, you think Venezuela is. It's the same tactic. Same thing. Okay. Yeah, they, so, what, so, basically, what has to happen is that the oil the just stops coming out. The difference is the thing that could bring it down as tactics go is is the fact that Venezuela has borders and uh, Cuba has only water. That is, yes, that is the most so important. Yeah, but, but it's very we, difficult for the, the Cubans to get out. Okay, how about this scenario then? We already have over three million, I think four million Venezuelans who are making their way, uh, have already left the country. Now, and what would you think about uh, the Trump administration basically giving Brazil and Colombia a sufficient amount of firepower to do it themselves so that American can stay out of it and maybe just supply the air power, but allow uh, allow Brazil Colombia and Brazilian infantry to go to in? To go in there, yes. What do you think about that? That would be a giant step for Latin America to finally f fight off communism as a collective group of countries. That's awfully difficult. The fear of violence, which... Uh, in all the countries, I don't know about Brazil, but certainly in the Spanish-speaking countries, the fear of violence is so t profound and very difficult to get them to to do anything like that. The, uh, the we're willing to get the troops out to get the the FARC and the ELN and yeah, uh, so Colombia's exhausted groups, but to actually enter Venezuela. Um, and and they're, they're very, very reluctant. Right. And if, let me say that if they did, it would be terribly, it, it could be very tragic. And that's why it's so, such a difficult situation, because the, the alternative, which would be to send in the, the troops, is one which uh, could result in thousands and thousands of people innocent people dying and that's why they're scared of it so thousands of people it's okay if thousands of people die under the hand of maduro um it's i hate to say it that way but i people just don't have the willpower to or they're just scared uh, that it would be even worse so they keep hoping that the lower-level military will finally turn on Maduro or something. Maybe Maduro will have a heart attack. God knows. But they very, they tremendous reluctance to make a, a radical step like that. Yeah, so in other words, Maduro and the Cubans just got to keep on feeding the two or three hundred yeah, thousand military paying guys. people off against each other. Yeah, keep them from fighting within. And, and I understand that uh, Venezuelan army has more generals than all the NATO armies combined, so they're well, making they, a lot of they, money. There are the four thousand of them or something, but uh, what they also have is more Cuban people over 
right. hearing your your conversations. conversations. And that's that's the real real stopper. In other words, I've been in the barracks and I'm fed up, and I say, "Shit, this cat, this can't possibly go on." And the next day, I'm, I'll be uh, find myself in the barracks being questioned and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, in other words, the famous Comité de Barrio. Nobody is safe if you follow my logic. Yeah, yeah, el Comité de Barrio, el Chivato. Yeah, is but it's within the military also. Right. Right. Yeah, they're, yeah, inside. Yeah, the, the Cubans are the political commissars inside the military. That was Nikita no, Khrushchev. No, it's not for the political commissars. It's the guy who's sitting next to you, who you don't, didn't know it, is spy who okay. will report anything you wow. say that's out of line. All right. He thought he was your, your buddy, but he's not. So it's, it looks like there's no and, real end. Uh, also, you know, one of the chances of the Venezuelan military turning on Maduro. He's, he's, he's being protected by Cubans. Right, Absolutely. and Russians also. What? He's got some Russian bodyguards as well. Well, that's, that, yeah, that's a minor part. The main thing is the Cubans. Yep, okay. Well, well thank you very Tough much. Tough situation. The, yeah, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Get well Get well from your uh, medical. Okay. and Hope you can go back soon. We, uh, remind, so remind us who we're speaking with. We're, t we're talking to Robert Bonham, who for many years was the editor of Ven Economia, the leading economic newsletter on the Venezuelan economy. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Tough so, situation, huh? Yeah, man. Um, uh, no easy none, way none, out. None of, none of the stuff you and I hear, what, took the, what takes everybody else so long, man? 30 years we've been talking about this. 30 years we've been saying that Cubans were going to infiltrate Latin America. They do. They, they supported the FARC. They supported you, you the FARC, yes. When you negotiate FARC, all the top dogs at FARC end up living lavish lives in Cuba. Santos sells out to the Cubans. Hey, you just stay out of my country or whatever you want. How much right. you want? Ah, $20 million a month. President Santos of Colombia, right. Yeah, gets his Nobel Peace Prize. And what? For what? To sell your country out? Yeah, same thing in Brazil. There were a lot of Cuban doctors in Brazil oh, under the Dilma and Lula administrations. And what's terrible is those Cubans, yeah, some of them want to come to Miami, but the others stay embedded in other responsibilities right. as intelligent doctors. Just like we see a lot of you attorneys doing cable news television. Fox News has got a bunch of attorneys. You know what I mean? Well, doctors can also be spies. Spies, excellent yeah. spies. And they stay embedded, and mm -hmm. it uh, doesn't take much to buy them. And now we have a bunch of, a giant circuit of double agent spies all over Latin America well, so, in every country. So why do you think, I mean, we were talking to Cliff about this. Why do people, why do Americans not see this? American millennials especially. I wasn't an Alfred Sprint. Americans love to stand under, never use an umbrella, and love to stand under eternal sunshine. <laughs> and that's what Americans have got. They're drunk on freedom. They don't even know if they start taking their freedom away unless they see a food line. And all they'll well, think look about... Look at Venezuela. It's coming. <clears throat> the socialism no, we have food leads lines to that. Already. You know, you see our food lines. They're in Portland, Oregon. They're in L.A. They're in San Francisco. There's 10 cities everywhere. Americans don't give a rat's butt that socialism is screwing them. You know, as the bikes, the, the guys who ride bikes all over mm -hmm. California, they see the 10 cities out there. 
They see yep. a patch of 10,000, a patch of 20,000, a patch of 30,000. Well, it's funny. What's happening in California is California is be, uh, becoming like a third world society with an upper class of highly educated technocrats. They can afford to pay property taxes. Right, technocrats. And then a lot of very poor people who are dependent on government subsidies. Hey, how about middle-income attorneys well, that are sitting right. in those tents? Mid- well, okay. And then and then you have a lot of middle-class people that just can't afford to live there, and they're I've the ones those, that are moving I've out. I've seen those. I think it's a Vox video mm-hmm. of a young girl going to those encampments, and there were doctors in there, shrinks, psychiatrists, really? attorneys, accountants. You know, they just fell on their luck. They had a foreclosure. They got drunk. And before you know it, they were doing acid and meth and they're yeah. living in the tents and their wife left them or their husband left them or their kids left them or they got thrown out of their house and their parents left them and they're living in tents. I remember once they came out the, the video where the city actually had the audacity to put a bunch of portalettes out mm-hmm. there. Well, guess what? It just got people from one tent city to, to go to the there. next right, tent right, city. Right. This one's got toilets. So the city had to remove and the portalettes. And the West Coast. Yes, California, California, Oregon, yeah, L.A. L.A. And, uh, you know, you, when you hit the Turnpike Trail of California, you start leaving the inner city or the urban core that is L.A., you start seeing the tents. Mm-hmm. Why could they have been able to marginalize them out there so that the average fold uh, opposition to this stuff doesn't actually have anything to report on? That's why these renegade websites are the ones that actually go in there to do interviews. Right. The sites like Vox that, you know, are... But with social media, you can't hide these things. They're everywhere. And it's the saddest thing. We have food lines already in this country, and nobody gives a butt. Why? Because they want to hate Donald J. Trump. And, I, okay, I want to say something on this show that's very important for us. What's it's, that? It's, it's crazy and enthusiastic that, as we are supporting our president. We, here on the Concrete Conservative, I'm not going to speak for Mr. Ed, because after all, he's in a stall just showing his teeth all the time. I'm not going to I'm not going to admit that Donald Trump is a conservative. I'm going to admit that he's an American. Mm-hmm. A patriotic American yes. who loves his country who didn't need this BS. Right. Didn't need this crap. Didn't need Mr. Cohen. Didn't need people crawling up his butt uh analyzing his stuff and and, and debating what her motives. I only know the obvious. He beat my guy who was really smart. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Yeah, he was that my says guy. says something. My guy, too. We're really stupid as a party because we're doing exactly what the Democrats are about to do. You know, they're going to top us. We had 17 candidates. They're no, going to have 20. No, no, no. The, the, can- the, the Democrat candidate will be Biden, Joe Biden. No, he won't. He won't and they will be with, with Kamala Harris. And the Democrat National Committee just announced today that the convention will be, be in Mo- Milwaukee, Milwaukee, where they're going to try to take back Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Well, That's going to be the strategy. When I was the only guy that can do that is Biden. So Biden will not run. He's too old. It's over for him. Well, then I don't know who's going to win those three states. I, I, it'll be the best looking of the bunch. Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris. Beto O'Rourke? Uh, Beto won't run. He is. He's well. Okay. I don't think he won't run. Uh, there's Bernie. Some, maybe Bernie will get. I the, think Bernie's going to gobble up a lot of the there enthusiasm. There we go. So who are, am I expecting now, Mr. Ed? This is Professor Charles Lipson, professor of, at the University of Chicago. You better re, uh, repeat his name several times so the audience know who they're listening to. This is Mac on the Rock, WSQF ninety four point five. You're listening live to the Concrete Conservative with Ed Vidal. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with? Charles Lipson. How are you? How are you, Charles? Thank you for calling. 
And uh, Ed's got a bunch of things he wants to ask well, you. Charles, thank you very much for calling. I wanted to let our audience know that you're a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Chicago, and I've known you for many years. And uh, I certainly esteem your your uh, political analysis. And I'm, I think my son might have taken a course from you at Chicago. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah yes. Uh, and uh, our friendship is, is one of my pleasures. All right. Well, thank you for calling. Now, so far today, the first half hour, we had Clifton Ross, who is an American left liberal journalist based in Berkeley, who's been covering Latin America for th over 30 years, and he's finally realized that socialism doesn't work. So we welcomed him with open arms, and we hope other people will you know, read uh, Hayek and Friedman and Stigler and all those guys. And then the second guy we had was uh, uh, Robert Bottom, who is a longtime distinguished journalist in uh, Venezuela. He ran Van Economia, which was the leading economics newsletter, and he's not sure what, what's going to happen there. So I wonder if you can give us any uh, guidance on what's, what might happen there, and especially I know you wrote an article recently on how you thought that the Trump ad administration was handling this very well. So let us know. Telling me what's gone on before. I'm not, I'm not an expert on Venezuela. I'm an expert uh, on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. politics more generally. And as possible, we'll get on to some of that. One of the disturbing features, actually, of the Venezuela issue uh, is to see that some people have actually come out for Maduro in uh, the Democratic Party of in course. the United States. I mean, of it's just astounding. Oh, come on. Of course. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the bipolarity in the country is severe. And it's yes, political it bipolar. <laughs> I can understand in the case of Cuba in uh, the 1970s where some people say it was an elected government and you're uh, duly elected and you <laughs> played a role in uh, a military coup to overthrow it. No, that, you mean Chile. Uh, Chile. Yeah. I'm sorry, Chile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, watch how you're yeah. treading. Uh, we know all this stuff. <laughs> the Cuba, uh, uh, tread lightly there when you yeah, say no, Cuba. Yeah, in 73, the U.S. overthrew no, no, uh, the, the duly elected course, Allende. Uh, Cuba is a major player yes. in uh, the Venezuela issue. Yes. I, uh, let me just go back to the Chile thing for a second. I can see why reasonable people uh, had taken different sides on that. Uh, but in the Venezuela side, uh, issue. There's only one side really to take here. The real question is, how do you get from here, which is uh, right now looks like a kind of a stalemate, yep. to there, which is a stable successor government and one that does not continue to pursue policies that will just lead what should be a productive, uh, prosperous economy right back into the toilet. Okay, but what do you make of people like, I think, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporting the Maduro dictatorship? What does that they're mean nuts. for the U.S.? I think they're nuts, but I think <laughs> what it, it it's not that they will have any effect. I think even within the Democratic Party, they are kind of on the extreme. But I think what it tells you is to quote uh, Diane Feinstein when she was attacking, uh, wrongly attacking a, uh, 
a Catholic uh, a judicial nominee, the dogma, she said, within you lives loudly. Yep. And I think that that's what you see with uh, Bernie and AOC and so forth, which is that these are committed leftists. In Bernie's case, a person who um, took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union yes. and has a long record of this. Um, and supported the Sandinista revolution. Yeah, and has said good things like, about... It's appalling that that people are supporting him. I think one of the... I, if I can go to Bernie for a second before we go back to sure. Venezuela, I think that part of the thing with Bernie is, um, is that Bernie has an authenticity at a time when most politicians do not. Uh, so Hillary yeah. Clinton, yeah. there was no center to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> she, she was going to go whichever way she thought the, uh, would bring her the most political benefits. I mean, she's obviously a liberal. She wasn't going to become conservative. But she, there was the, she was the least authentic figure you could possibly imagine. It was a big part of uh, Donald Trump's appeal was that he was authentic. He, that meant that he made mistakes in the sense that he would say things that weren't polished and still does. Uh, he would make statements uh, in press conferences and, it's, and in speeches that uh, – there were things that were not to his advantage to say, but people said he's speaking what he actually thinks, and we don't hear that from most politicians. Unfortunately, sometimes when people like Bernie uh, say what they think, they get in real trouble. Look at what Ilhan Omar said what she thinks about Jews and American well, Jews and she, about Israel. She's, a, she's she being authentic. And rightly so. She's being authentic. She's an African Muslim. Somalians were very active in the Indian Ocean slave trade. She's speaking authentically. And in fact, she was partly defended by some Democrats sure. for saying she doesn't come from our culture. Right. Well, that's part of the problem. Right. Right. I mean... We have, in your area of South Florida, we have people who've moved from other countries, but they're not trying to remain separate from being American. Right. And their, their children and grandchildren and so forth, they're fully American. Now, they, they have strong ties to Cuba or whatever country they've come from, but they're Americans. And it's it's a terrible thing that we've moved into a kind of identity politics world in which uh, you gain extra points for not becoming an American. Well, uh, uh, much more than that, I think, is the 70,000 refugees brought to Minnesota for her right. to even get elected. That is what. That's the real cold shower. And, and that because, is the, you know, the 70, main. Seventy thousand is the number. That's the main Remember, source. Remember, hundreds of thousands of Cubans came to Miami. Yeah, that's the main source of, of of Islamic recruiting in the United States. And also it's Michigan. Absolutely atrocious. Yeah, it's absolutely atrocious, and it is a self-inflicted wound done by the Clinton administration. Well, the, are you saying that the Clintons started the Somali yeah. uh, refugee yep. program? I thought it was uh, the Obama administration. No, they've been I here a long time. I thought that they, uh, 
it may have been the Obama administration. Well, accelerating it was the Democrats. It was done by the Democrats, and it it, it was a terrible mistake. I mean, people do live in bad conditions in Somalia, but that's not our fault. And the world is full of people who live in bad conditions. We can't import them all. And if you import them in very large numbers, then what happens is that they form uh, a contained community. Right. They only assimilate. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Venezuela and what I see as the problem now. First of all, let me say what I think the Trump administration's success has been and what I think uh, the hard the hard situation they're coming up against right now. Their, their success has been, first of all, to clearly state in a way that I think uh, uh, the previous administration did not, that we sharply oppose everything Maduro stands for. Well, that's because the, the prior administration didn't oppose him. Well, they they um, they certainly didn't oppose him in a forthright right. and open way. Well, if you go to watch baseball games with their leader in Cuba, right. uh, obviously you're giving them a blessing. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. And then... Um, once you say you oppose them, you have to decide at that point whether or not you think that you can tilt their policy or whether you're going to opt for regime change. And it was very and, – and whether you opt for regime change depends in part on what option – whether you think that's a, a, a real possibility and whether or not the post – change regime would be stable and pro-American. Um, we, we learned a lot in Afghanistan and Iraq that it's a lot easier to take out a regime than it is to stand up a stable new one in its place. Absolutely. Iraq yeah. is a perfect although, example. Although, Charles, in Latin America, there are a lot more cultural and people connections, so we can make sure that the new government is friendly to the U.S. than in Iraq or Afghanistan. Yes, you're absolutely correct. I'm not trying to draw that analogy no. that uh, <laughs> Afghanistan is not really even a country. Right, right. right. It, it's mostly a set of tribes within a geographical yep. area yep. that are separated by mountains and all kinds of other things. So I'm not trying to, and, and we all know the problems in Iraq with the three different yep. uh, groupings and their uh, uh, all those different problems. So, but. Uh, in in Venezuela, um, the Trump administration uh, does not, it absolutely does not want to uh, commit large numbers of troops into any kind of on-the-ground fighting. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't send in some uh, uh, special, special, yeah, special forces. Mean, yeah. You know, the, yeah, go ahead. The, 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 the caller just before you, who was a, a yeah. veteran journalist in Venezuela, said that there's no appetite for violence. Right. So uh, the, um, um, so I think one of the big uh, issues there is whether or not uh, the other side has an appetite for violence. And that's the that's the well, that, that seems to be obvious. Yeah, the answer is yes. The <laughs> Cubans will not give up power. It's uh, you can see uh, uh, me and Ed are both of Cuban descent, so 
I can tell when a Cuban man steps out of those Hummers in the streets and fires on the Venezuelan people. I can just tell by yeah. by body structure and frame which one is Cuban and which one is Venezuelan. It's yeah. just obvious. To Charles, us. what's happening now is that there's about 22,000 Cuban security guards that are not only upholding Maduro, defending Maduro, but making sure that he doesn't quit. This is a very important point. We think because of the nature, there's a, there's a notion in uh, in foreign policy and international relations called mirroring, where the way we are is the way we think other people are. We have a united uh, military under civilian control. We, we, of course, the army is different from the air force and so forth, but what what the Venezuelans have is really a whole series of different militaries. And some of their uh, senior officers are just professional military people. Some are essentially bureaucrats who are trying to figure out uh, where things lie. But they also have death squads, and they have uh, a Cuban group, and I'm, I'm sure that there is support there from the Iranians because Hezbollah yep, yep, yep. Uh, has had a, a foothold in Venezuela. None of these want to give it up. Right. I don't know how much effort uh, the Russians will put in other than to make as much trouble for the Americans, <laughs> as they can, for the U.S. as they can. I don't think China will do very much. Right. But, uh, but there are a number of foreign powers that are backing this regime, and they have, as you say, footholds within the army. So then the question becomes, uh, what's going to happen to ordinary foot soldiers in the army? You can get Cubans to fire on people, but uh, we uh, two weeks ago, we didn't know if uh, parts of the army would begin defecting in large numbers to the Guaido side, and I think so far we haven't seen that, and we haven't seen very much at the more senior levels uh, of the military. We haven't seen much in uh, the way of defection yet. Now, it's also true that they they haven't asked the military, their own military, to do very much in, that would be just totally both obnoxious to soldiers on the ground and put them in a position where they could be executed after a, after a change of government and so forth. That's the problem we're at now. Um, and it's, and, and we don't know, this is I think the fifth straight day of essentially no uh, electrical power. The, what I've been reading, and that's putting tremendous pressure on the government, and um, what I've been reading is- Do you believe it was a brush I, fire? I believe it was 100% sabotage, and the previous caller felt it was a, a natural occurrence. Well, just incompetence well, and corruption. I don't corruption. think it's a natural occurrence. Um, well, you know, add corruption to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, there was an old joke uh, about the uh, four problems with Soviet agriculture, these natural problems. Yes. Uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, but... One of the questions is uh, that, I mean, one thing that I've seen reported, and I believe it may have been in the New York Times, was that uh, some of their power-generating equipment 
uh, actually kind of blew up or malfunctioned or something. Now, whether that was sabotage or not, uh, I don't know. But the point is, it's not easily corrected. And they have been trying to get power back up for several days without success. Yeah. Now, it could be that this was software that uh, that was corrupted by an outside yeah. power. It could be a physical sabotage or something I do not know the question is uh, ordinary people there are desperate and what you're hearing now is stories out of hospitals for example children in hospitals where parents are not being allowed to come in and even remove their children and children are inside screaming trying to get out the hospitals have been turned into prisons in effect death wards uh, in effect and the more these bad things happen the more that the people who are associated with the regime are going to face real consequences if there is a change of government they know it and therefore they will fight to the death okay but charles uh, venezuela will uh, whatever will happen there will happen but one of the questions that i want to get to you before you leave us is what is the effect of Venezuela on the U.S. domestic politics? Because, for example, here in Florida, Venezuela is a big issue, and Senator Rubio has been very active, and Vice President Pence, and uh, the Trumpster was down here a week or two ago. Uh, and I think it's going to be a real issue in, in local elections, and the local Democrats are very worried because it's becoming a Republican issue. It's becoming clear to the Hispanic community in South Florida that the Democrat Party does not support the Democratic opposition to the socialist dictator in Venezuela. So that's going to be a Republican plus. However, the Democrat response to the State of the Union, delivered in Spanish by Javier Becerra, the Attorney General of California, didn't even mention Venezuela. So how do you think that's going to play in American domestic politics? Unless we send a lot of soldiers in, which I would doubt. No. It won't be an issue uh, unless, A, we send the soldiers in, or B, uh, there is a change of regime, and Trump can take some credit for that, and it is not a mess with an ongoing civil war mm-hmm. there, which is also a real possibility, yeah. right? That the Cubans uh, and the uh, holdovers from the uh, from the old regime will try to sabotage and all all the rest. But I think it's not. If if you look at what big national issues are, um, I would say that it falls well below immigration. Right. Uh, I would say it falls well below what to me is the big a wild card which is, does the economy keep growing through the election? If there's a recession, uh, that will overwhelm a lot of other issues. Uh, One of the things I've got to tell you that I find so peculiar is at a time when our economy has been growing so steadily and rapidly, unemployment is at record lows. To see this kind of dissatisfaction throughout the country is very disturbing and puzzling. No, Democrats don't want work. They want reparations and welfare. What are you talking about? Well, it, 
if they do that, they are moving into Walter Mondale electoral territory. Yep. It, it's worth remembering that the that the the Democrats retook uh, the House not because of the Alexandria or Ocasio Cortez's and um, Rashida Tlaib's and so forth. They they took it because of these. Connor Lamb type candidates in Pennsylvania who were center left. Right. And they support gun rights and that sort of thing. If the party becomes completely identified as it uh, with AOC and others, it's it's um, headed to Thelma and Louise territory where they're where they're going straight off a cliff. And I've got to tell you that Nancy Pelosi's uh, inability uh, to control her caucus last week when they had clear anti-Semitic yep. uh, comments, and they ended up with a very watered-down resolution that didn't name the person who did it and didn't single out the reason that they were having the meeting, which was anti-Semitism. Not that there's not other kinds of, uh, uh, of hatred that needs to be uh, uh, dealt with, but that was not the issue. Uh, and the other, uh, the fact that she couldn't control it indicates where the energy of the party is. And the other thing is that the big megaphone now belongs to all the uh, uh, Democratic candidates who are running for president. Yep. And they're running very much to the left. Far left. There are two or three candidates that are that in just four or five years ago would have been considered far left, who are now considered centrist candidates. Yes, and Hickenlooper wouldn't even say that he was a capitalist. Right, even though he's been a successful capitalist. Yeah, he's been a microbrew owner. Exactly. So what Hickenlooper's um, silence indicates is not only this issue within the party where the where the energy is, but it also goes back to this first thing we were talking about, which is authenticity. If you, a capitalist, can't say you're a capitalist, in a country that has been built on capitalism, A, you're making a bad mistake, and B, you're just never going to be considered an authentic person. You're going to be somebody who can't say whether you love your mother until you take a poll. Yeah, but you know, uh, I I hope you're right, but I think that the American electorate is shifting, and the Democrats uh, around 2011-2012 bet on this emerging Democrat majority, which is not capitalist. Uh, These are folks that are either collecting uh, crony capitalist technocrats who think that experts should uh, govern us, uh, or they're uh, welfare dependents. And uh, they're they're totally uh, dependent on government. And it's those two constituencies, the top level, the technocrats, many lawyers, for example, and then the dependents and the expense of the middle and working classes that the Democrats have bet their party on. Yes, I agree with that. And I don't think you can win Ohio that way. No, but they're not going to win Ohio. They're trying to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania because they're just going to have their their convention in Milwaukee. The only reason to do that is to try to win those three states and hopefully with, probably with Joe Biden. Uh, I think Biden is a very flawed candidate. Yep. He cannot win. 
But who's going to beat him? Who's going to beat him? He, not only can he not win, I don't think he'll get more than maybe Who, who's four. Gonna, he got 2% every who's, time he Who's going to beat him in the primaries? He's leading in every poll. That poll, uh, polls didn't get elect, polls uh, are, Trump elected. Those polls at this point are ridiculous. Are name recognition polls. Right. Yeah, because people are oblivious to what's going on. But I think if you if you have your elect your convention in Milwaukee, that signals that you're trying to recover Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You're trying to appeal to the white working class in those states. And who else are you gonna do that with? But remember, Biden will continuously gaff. Oh I I know, I know, but who else who else is gonna is He's gonna not Trump. Him? Only Trump can gaff. Who's gonna beat him? Kamala <laughs> Harris? You think Kamala Harris well, can think, win those three I think states? The, um, I think the the woman vote in the Democratic primary is going to win. I believe that the only candidate that is female that anybody takes seriously, quite frankly, is a good-looking... Who, Kamala Harris? Chic woman from a large state, and right. it is Kamala. But she's not going to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania back. Yeah, yeah. but it should be her votes will be diluted by another woman. And guess what? It makes them all weaker. Remember, they're, no, they're no, about but, to commit so the a worse offense. So the question is, who's going to win the the Democrat presidential can, yeah, uh, but who, nomination? Yeah, but my point is not who's going to win, is how weak they're going to be once they win, because it'll be a deluded right. elector. It'll be a, a McGovern-Mondale. Uh, it's this terrible thing that I can't believe the Democrats would make the same mistake the Republicans made, fronting 17 candidates like we did, and now they're going to do 20. It just makes well, absolutely no sense. The, the thing to understand is that the the party what we mean by a political party has changed very dramatically uh over the past 30 40 and certainly over the past 60 or 70 years um organized political parties are just far 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 less powerful than they used to be they have certain advantages uh, but the leaders of the party which is what the old superdelegates were in the Democratic Party, yep. uh, were, are not able to pick a nominee. Um, and they're not able to funnel so much money into one that they can make it a foregone conclusion. The most popular candidates in the last presidential election primaries were not members of either party. Uh, it's true Hillary got more votes, but the most popular member was really Bernie Sanders. Right. He wasn't even a Democrat. The most popular Republican was uh, Donald Trump. He wasn't even a Republican until fairly recently. The parties were remade. Right. Uh, the Republican Party is being remade as an electoral party by Trump, and it's being remade not, if you will, uh, what's unusual for Trump is it's not being made from the top down. It's being made because if you oppose Trump in a primary, you lose. And right. so politicians who are not sort of readily in Trump's camp, and I would put sort of somebody like Mitch McConnell, he's more of a big government sort of center-right Republican, he understands that logic. He's able to work with with Trump. But but the split in the Republican Party is really between big business and um, the old Harry Truman, Ronald Reagan-type Democrats. Um, And uh, Trump has won them over, and he's proven that if you oppose him, you do not win a Republican primary.
That's yeah, that sure. happened here locally with uh, Maria Vida Salazar against oh, Shalala. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, I think the real race in the Republican Party in 2020 will be at the Congress level. And I think the Republicans, if they get their act together, have a good shot at getting those congressional seats back. Because as you said, it's uh, a lot of the Connor Lambs, but I think the Connor Lambs are going to be wiped out by all the noise being made by the AOCs. It could be. You could be exactly right. I do wonder, you know, we saw something very interesting in in Florida, and your uh, listeners will know about it very well. Uh, Donald Trump had a choice in endorsing in the Republican primary between a lower-risk option for him, the guy who was clearly ahead and seemed likely to win in the general, and a higher-risk candidate who is very much in Trump's camp. Ron DeSantis. Right, yeah. Right. And he chose DeSantis, which was a risky political choice for Trump, and not one that any standard professional politician would have done. It was a brilliant choice, and it's working out well so far. I mean, yep. it certainly worked out well electorally. He won. Yeah, but he, he just barely won. Well, remember, he won. He, uh, I know him personally, and I was kind of involved in this campaign. So uh, he won simply, really, because, of course, his allegiances to Trump made him ironclad. His service in Iraq made him ironclad. A Harvard uh, um, yeah. attorney made him ironclad. A beautiful wife who was recognized in the panhandle ironclad uh, didn't help. I mean, it, it must he have helped that he won. was a, a Little League champion, too, he as a kid. He just barely won. But the, what really made him win was the fact that Bob Graham's daughter lost to Andrew Gillum. And that tells you a huge amount yep. about what the Democratic Party now is. Right. Did I say Bob Graham's wife? I meant daughter. Daughter. Gwen Graham lost. You, you said daughter, I think. I think yeah. I said daughter. Okay. She lost in yeah. a primary. Anyway, she, she was the more centrist candidate. Yes. You could have had two relatively centrist candidates running on both the Democratic and Republican side. Kind of a conventional yep. uh, election. And instead, what you got... Uh, Tea Party uh, was 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 much sharper differentiation. Dylan was a total socialist. What happened in Florida could be the future of American politics for the next four or eight years. Right? I mean, with with much more uh, as Barry Goldwater era people uh, were saying, a choice, not an echo. and a lot of Americans are actually kind of in the middle and not sure who to choose. Well, America's also the probably the biggest gift that Trump will, has given his country is the loud, convincing voice to not trust the press. And that was that was that was enormous for us because I grew up despising the press because of their flamboyant and uh, charade and. Uh, uh, seduction they had with Fidel Castro growing up. I couldn't believe how they would made him out to be the David against Goliath. So I was already a fake newser since I was in my teens. But I couldn't, I couldn't wait for the nation to realize that the media were, were basically a, a series of advocacies for status liberalism, not really reporting the news. And of course, no. the cable television network helps that as well. This has been a huge change. Um, 
the American political landscape is um, that people no longer, well, people no longer trust virtually any institution in America. And the media, the media have declined and declined for really good reasons. As the media landscape has changed, the media has become very openly and aggressively partisan. Yep. I mean, it's almost impossible to tell the difference in the Washington Post and the New York Times between the editorial page and the hard news coverage. They're just so biased. Yeah, that was a, that's, a great, uh, that's a great analysis on your part because the previous caller was saying the same thing, and I'm glad you're uh, bridging that, that giant divide that these people have an agenda, and, and reporting the news is not on it. Well, they, um, that's why I actually think that the uh, lawsuit that the Nick Sandman people yeah. uh, have brought is going to be just devastating for mainstream uh, uh, media outlets because they were just caught red-handed. And to a yeah, young boy, yeah. I mean, and there's God. a chance that the Supreme Court will reconsider that Sullivan versus New York Times case, and uh, maybe the the press will have to be more careful. Well, especially when the the, the person is a minor, right? My God, well, I was disgusting. He's a minor. He wasn't a public figure. Unless you're going to say that simply going to a demonstration, if you or I uh, went to a demonstration, or perhaps even just a vote, or any number of things where we're out in public, makes us a, quote, public figure. And then you can just say anything, and you can make it up. And then in order to win a lawsuit against them for defamation or this or the like, you not only have to prove that it was false, even reckless, you have to prove that they meant, they knew it was false, and that they meant to do it, not just that they were negligent in some way. Well, good Lord, there were, even the most rudimentary uh, inspection of other video that was available online and all the rest uh, would have told them that the, that the Nick Sandman case, they had it wrong. And they didn't just have it wrong the first day. They had it wrong for several days when they should have known better. And the Washington Post has still not really apologized. It sort of said, well, we didn't have everything. We could have included more and given more context. How about the very fact that, that, the, that the 60-year-old behaved as a mature adult that was lost in, in the narrative? Exactly. And so, and I got to tell you, I watched uh, San, uh, Nicholas Sandman's lawyer, Lynn Wood. Yeah. He was on Mark Levin last night. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, I come from the South, so I know what a good Southern lawyer looked like. It, it all has a, I'm just a country boy, but here's the way I see it. He didn't <laughs> quite go that far. But, well, kind of, he did. That accent was very accurate, what you just did. He sounded like I'm that. I'm telling you, he's going to, well, I, I come by it naturally. I'm from Mississippi. He, he, <laughs> he's going to lacerate these people. And let me tell you, this ain't a Washington jury uh, where 96% of the uh, of the electorate in Washington, D.C. voted against Trump, which is how Bob Mueller has set up all of his grand juries and everything else. This is going to be in Covington, Kentucky. And I got to tell you, if I were CNN and the Washington <laughs> Post out. And, 
Bill Maher and all these other guys that he's going to go after, he's going to hang them up by the short hairs. Yes, absolutely. That's so a southern think, expression. You think there'll be a billion dollar settlement? <laughs> no, two hundred and fifty. No, but two hundred and fifty. But that's five five different parties. <laughs> you just he's, what he's going to do? I, if I, I, look, he he is totally an expert at this, and what I suspect he will do is get a big visible settlement from one of the. One of the, the two big losers ones. early on, and then the others will see the writing on the wall. And if settle. I were Bill Maher or any of these people who tweeted out, I would be petrified. Yeah, because they were asking to just go ahead and knock the kid out. That's just absurd. Right, and and uh, they're also going to be looking at how much insurance coverage they have. Right? The insurance companies, so, you know, this always comes up in malpractice suits, right? Uh, uh, I'm, uh, if I have, uh, look, if you're the Washington Post, I don't know if you have $250 million in in libel coverage. Yeah. Well, Jeff Bezos has them covered. <laughs> maybe so, but I, uh, maybe so. And he may very well not wish to make an admission that they were wrong. Right. We'll see. But, CNN, you know, this is a big deal, right? That that um, he's going to be suing them for at least two hundred fifty million dollars. He said last night, and maybe maybe more. I don't know that he can show. You that think that would affect the mer- You would think that would affect a pullout of Time Warner for the merger? No, no, they're not going to do that. But they might oh, fire I, all I, their executives. I, 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 it, it, hey, if it, it gets out of if it gets out of control, Time might bail. No, too late. It, it, it could change the price a little bit, but these are multi, multi. This, these are rounding errors in the uh, in the scale of this. Uh, what I think is uh, it, it is kind of disturbing to me that President Trump would uh, inter would intervene so visibly in saying that he didn't want a merger. It either is legal or it's not, and we have certain rules for that. I don't like uh, mm-hmm. the United States having uh, a PBS and uh, and NPR. We we don't need. We're uh, a country where the government should have zero control over the media within our country, and therefore I don't like having the president of the United States weighing in on these things. Yeah, I agree. We we definitely don't want to. What will we call our BBC anyway? No, we don't right. want it. I don't mind Ours would be BBB. the BBC's overseas service, right? But, right. you know, in, in, in uh, look, uh, I mean, it, this is not just, for me, a question of the fact that the upper middle class likes to watch costume dramas set in England. Uh, the point is not that, uh, but if we're going to have a public channel, the public channel essentially ought to be educational. Well, like ours here. Yes. Because uh, uh, <laughs> I lost my freedom of speech, and that motivated me to build this radio station because I wanted to buy my freedom of speech back. I lost it in a, in a very public fight with the public school system. So, yeah, yeah. I hear exactly Ma- what Manny you're saying. Manny tried to no, trigger a, that, an election. This is the right thing to do, and fortunately today, even if you don't have enough money to buy uh, 
an over-the-air radio station, you can start podcasting and all yep. the rest. This has been very damaging uh, to newspapers, not only because they're alternate sites to get their news, so when they make a mistake, it can be challenged. That, that as you know, the the crucial moment came when Dan Rather was called out right. for his fake yeah, an icon. news. And he had to right. resign. Exactly. But it's also the case, that, and I know a fair amount about newspapers. Uh, I've never been a reporter, but I have been a columnist for the Chicago Tribune and other things, in addition to my job as a, a professor at the University of Chicago. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who ran newspapers during the heyday. They made a huge amount of money from two sources that have just dried up. One was the big retailers in a local market who had really only one choice. They could only advertise in the Miami Herald or the Chicago Tribune or whatever if they wanted to reach everybody about a big sale at the downtown store. And the other was if you had a product to sell in the want ads or uh, wanted to rent a house or sell a house, there was really only one place to go. So they could do monopoly pricing, but that's all gone, completely all gone. There, there's competition. So now they have well, to depend. Now they have to depend on school districts and city governments and county governments for <laughs> help wanted ads. No, and uh, yeah, that's not enough. That, that won't be enough. No, it's not enough. There is a loss. There is a cost to all this. I must say, and the big cost is you need uh, investigative reporters. Uh, not to put up on in the paper who got arrested. That's public information and easily uh, gathered. But if there's corruption, uh, if if you need a long-term uh, investigation of massage parlors or whatever it might be, oh, well, you picked the perfect subject. No, no, no. <laughs> right. No, uh, but no, if, but Charles, if you want if, that investigation to have a happy ending. Okay, but Charles, if if the newspapers are progressive, I say that the biggest source of corruption is government and regulation and zoning laws. And if they're progressive, they don't want to cover that. Well, that's increasingly become true. That, uh, but but in a certain yes, I I completely agree with what you're saying. I'm going to say that that um, political sources. Uh, have have a second degree of leverage over uh, over news reporting. Uh, take the days when Henry Kissinger was really the only person other than Richard Nixon who knew what our foreign policy was. If you wrote a really critical uh, news report or opinion piece about Henry Kissinger, you did not get inside uh, access to him. And so you had every reason to write in a favorable way. And I'm sure this must happen for reporters who want to go to Cuba. You could probably tell me more about that. But if you want to go, it was certainly true in the Palestinian Authority. If you wanted to go into the West Bank areas that they controlled, they had almost complete control over what went out over your name as a report. And so you got bad reporting. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there's so many, and that was the blessing of Donald J. Trump, that all these reporters who were in bed with really narcissist despots all over the country, and I include my previous president as a despot in terms of his policies, yeah. he, got a, he got a pass. Barack Obama got an eight-year pass 
And yeah. I think Wait, did you notice that Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, who's running for president, refused to condemn Assad? Unbelievable. Yep. And you don't understand. And I want to respect her and I want to engage in her policies and at least listen to her because, you know, she served in the military and all. And then she does that. And then there goes well, off. The, the Democrat Party is becoming more and more extreme. Every to the time left. you give them a chance to try to believe in anything they say, they disappoint every single time. And I'm happy to say that I've gone to bed every night knowing I've never voted but, for a Democrat. But you know, uh, Charles, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta tell you. Well, I, I was a, a Scoop Jackson Democrat in Chicago, and there are yep. no Republicans in Chicago to vote for anyway. But uh, well, you know, there's me, no, and okay. I don't run for office. I gotta tell you, in my precinct, when we vote, uh, there are always two or three Republican votes. All right, good, good, good. <laughs> in the whole precinct, you can. You but, can name them. You but you know, the, the people. but the real I think the real problem for America is that uh, it's not just the Democrat politicians and leaders are going left. There are at least two constituencies, as I named them, the technocrats and the dependents who are supporting this drive left. And that's the that's real right. issue. I'm not so, right. I'm not so com- I'm not so convinced of what you just said because you said it twice already today. Yep. I believe it's much worse than that because of the amateurism at the elementary, middle school, and high school right. level. Right, people are being educated that, allows that way. kids to go into the University of Chicago with a, their sponges half-filled, and then they'll, they'll run into a very authoritative, legitimate professor like yourself that has certain pedigree, certain education, and the, and the sponge gets completely absorbed with stuff that just isn't true. But you don't indoctrinate them with leftist babble, do you? Oh, but many professors do. Yes. And it's a big problem. And, you know, my own view on this is kind of maybe different from, from many people. I don't... There are some professors who you could be in their class for three years, and you would never know what their political views are. Those those were my professors in 78. I don't believe you. That's right. I'm not that kind of professor. I will often say, here's how I view it, but but you can view it completely differently, and if you make your argument, you don't win by being on my side or lose by being against me. I like the back and forth. As long as people make arguments and don't, you know, there's a there's an old joke uh, where the guy goes into a doctor and the doctor and he says my shoulder's hurting and the doctor says looks at him, inspects him, says, uh, well, my diagnosis is you have bursitis, and the the patient says, well, I'd really like to get a second opinion, and the doctor says, okay, you're a jerk. <laughs> love it. Yep. I love it because I've had bursitis. It's really painful. <laughs> yeah, I. I, I yeah, well, we, got, we got a lot of. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of professors who say, "I'll give you a second opinion." You're a jerk too, and right. in fact, our policy. Uh, we we're just bursting through a lot of norms uh, about what constitutes. Uh, reasonable back and forth discussion uh, about serious different kinds of issues where the first response where people differ is to make an ad hominem personal attack on you to say you're a fascist. 
fascist. Or, or close-minded. Racist. Extremist. Yeah, racist. And, you know, uh, and then you have all these hoaxes as well. Right. Uh, because as soon as calling out somebody for being, let's say, racist or, you know, whatever it is, uh, is a trump card, then all you have... Uh, all you have to do is pretend that that happened to you uh, to win uh, support. And, and there is a real problem because there are people who are attacked for their race or their religion and so forth. And to pretend for, for people to do what appears to have been the case with this just a Smollett attack, which is to pretend to be attacked for and your political views, it, it, it really damages people who've been uh, genuinely uh, assaulted. Right? right, like white Christians. Yes. Yes. Like, it's, it's, uh, like this guy, kid, uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're, uh, you know, this thing at the University of California, it, it's just a physical attack right. on a uh, somebody who's doing nothing. By the way, it took Berkeley police, we, they had a full frontal picture of this guy, and it took him over a week to make an arrest. Yeah, that, that guy must have been hiding in a closet. Um, no, they didn't want to do it. They were oh, hoping they for an excuse. No, I think the guy was... They were looking for an excuse not to do it. I think he had a lot of buddies sending him potato chips and hanging out and not leaving not leaving his house after he got busted like that. Now, what is it that uh, we are to do with the fact that we're having a political argument with a group of people that might not be to blame only because they weren't alive, but what is it that the left has to do when they've received everything they've wanted since 1903 11 filibuster-proof Senate since 1911, and virtually has passed every single social policy of great importance, and it has failed. It has not reduced poverty, and it's uh, there's even Social Security is bankrupting the country, and it's actually stealing from people. And income taxes hurt wage owners after the Supreme Court said it was private property, and it was, you know basically fraudulently passed as an amendment to the United States Constitution. What do we do about arguing the facts that this country can never possibly repair itself if we find a different way, we can't find a different way to tax people and allow people to keep their earnings and be able to buy stuff that makes them uh, closer to the pursuit of happiness? Why is it that we can't talk about the stuff that's really killing us as a country, which is our entitlement spending. How, why is it we just can't, I mean, I suggested to Ed that in the next budget impasse, which actually happened, was instead of shutting down the government, just uh, fire everybody who's... All the non-essential personnel. All non-essential personnel gets a pink slip and we negotiate with you later, your employee contract, you buy them out and reduce the size of government by 25% right then and there. Because it's not going to happen through reform. This is very important what you're saying. Let me let me try to uh, pick out two or three points from what you've said. The first is that the uh, I looked into what happens uh, during the temporary government uh, shutdowns, and there are um, uh, there are two kinds of layoffs. One is the temporary government shutdown layoffs, and the other. Are Reduction in force layoffs are essentially ones where 
your job, let's say your job was to uh, feed horses uh, for the government and that now everything is a car and so there are no horses to feed. So your job is essentially uh, what the British would call redundant. You can be put on leave because your job is essentially no longer there. And then after six months of that kind of leave, you can be let go. Uh, if the the um, if this administration wants to permanently roll back the size of government, as opposed to doing what Ronald Reagan did, which was pause its growth for eight years before it went back uh, to sort of its normal year after year after year growth, not just in size but in scope. Then you have to begin doing something fundamental, and it can't be just consolidating a couple of departments. But, but, uh, but remember, it can't feel good either. It's going to cost you votes, but it has to happen, or else our kids are going to be in food lines. That's the basic issue with Social Security and others. People know what needs to be done, but nobody has the political energy to want to take it on. Uh, George W. Bush tried to take on entitlements after he won re-election, and he just had his hat handed to him at that time. And Trump has not done anything on the sort of big entitlement growth. Well, so, he just signed a really grotesque budget. That was yeah, that and, just left uh, us floored. So this is a big problem. The the other thing is that I would say that it, there is no appetite for uh, full-scale libertarianism in the United States. In other words, there are parts of the New Deal that um, for a long time are going to be in place. You have, If you want to roll back government, you have to begin doing it in ways that are going to command some degree of uh, political support. Well, and my sense is that the Republicans, for example, um, have won a tremendous amount of support uh, by uh, by the cutting taxes yep. uh, approach. But if well, if, if you don't if, cut spending, then my God, the deficit's yeah. ballooning as we well, speak. I, I agree well, with you, guy. You got to cut that's spending. Exactly right. But, but you know, and also uh, another issue that is also that people don't seem to realize. The media has sold out a bill of goods here that that China and Japan support our debt when the the, the debt is being supported by the American people who are buying the yeah. Treasury bills, and it's Americans that are bankrupting but, themselves but, 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 paying yeah. for but, Treasury bills. But Charles, let me let me give you a, a, a way, gleam you, of a little bit of hope. Not not so much on the spending side, but I do think that there is a willpower from the president to take on the administrative branch of the federal government and the same thing at the state levels. And I think you're I seeing... Agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think we're seeing federalism come back, at least in part, because yep. the Democrats not having won uh, all the, uh, the national offices would like to be able to do more in California sure. and... Uh, and uh, New York well, and Connecticut, well, New Jersey. Well, they're coming to, yeah, they're coming yeah. to Miami. Federalism <laughs> and nullification, too. Well, uh, thank you very much for your call. This is the end Charles, of our we show. we got to get going, but thank you very much. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Yeah, we'll uh, do it again. Let's do it again. You bet. Absolutely. Thank Th you. Uh, thank you very much. You're listening to WSQF 94.5 with the Concrete Conservatives. 
If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.